this uh, last year, my good friend Peter, who is uh, leading us uh, in our liturgy this morning, got me into uh, F1, Formula One racing, watching uh, uh, these Formula One guys. I've dove in and I'm really enjoying it. And I've come to discover that the powers that be in Formula One, the mathematicians and those in um, uh, you know, theoretical you know, physics, tell us that the Formula One race car can go so fast that if there was a tunnel long enough, it could theoretically drive upside down on the roof of that tunnel. It's like a fighter jet with wheels. And uh, they put the wings upside down on the Formula One cars to keep them on the ground as opposed to launching because the speeds are incredible. And uh, there's a young man, he's the world champion, greatest Formula One uh, race car driver, at least in our lifetime. His name is Lewis Hamilton, and he's won 91 races. He's a seven-time world champion and arguably will go down in history as, as one of the greatest or the greatest uh, Formula One driver of all time. And being a young black man uh, in a context where, uh, you know, just wasn't looking around and seeing uh, other black uh, Uh, people represented in Formula One racing. There's only 20 seats in the entire sport, in the entire world. And so for him to be there uh, as a young black man was extremely rare. And he would describe his experience like that scene out of Cool Runnings where the Jamaican bobsled team gets to the top of the hill and everybody else looks at the Jamaicans like, what are you doing here? And he would describe his Formula One experience a little bit like that. And his dad would often say to him, uh, do all of your talking on the track. And we have been going through the book of James, where James sounds quite a bit like Lewis Hamilton's father in saying, Christian, don't talk a big game about grace. Don't talk a big game about gospel. Do all of your talking on the track. In other words, faith that is truly alive is going to be demonstrated in a very tangible and real way. And so... um, in the same way that uh, in racing, you do this thing called, you know, you shake the car down. So I have extremely limited racing experience because I did some racing about 10 years ago. But you would do something called a shakedown. You take the car out and you test it to see if any parts fall off. You know, the last eight months in the COVID uh, scenario for the church has been like a great global church shakedown. It has tested us and globally speaking, Parts are falling off. It's because the testedness of our faith in difficult times um, causes for us to really come to grips with this thing we call grace and this thing we call gospel and really makes us come to, to terms with how real and true that actually is. We know that none of us are saved by our works. We're saved by Christ's perfect works. The scriptures repeatedly teach, and James is no exception, that we're not saved by our ongoing progress. We are saved by Christ's perfection. And so as those who are truly saved by grace, um, the good news of the gospel is even when there is a great shakedown, like the last eight, nine months of the church, that it is in the end not going to be the strength of our grip on Christ that saves us. It is going to be the strength of Christ's grip on his people, on his church that saves us. And yet, though it is true that we are saved by grace alone, the tone in James' book always seems to sound like, do all of your talking on the track, Christian. And so we're going to come to James chapter 5, which is the end of his letter, and we're going to read from verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. 
Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise them up. And if they have committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. We're going to break this text down this morning in three ways. We're going to look at uh, the following things. First, the problem of being sick and tired. Secondly, what to do when we're sick and tired. And thirdly, the call to minister to the sick and tired. So firstly, the problem of being sick and tired is this. When we get sick and tired, it is very tempting to settle for anesthetic that gets us through the moment rather than turning to God who strengthens us for the long haul. When you look at verse 13, it starts out and James has the same advice for us, whether we're suffering or whether we're having times of great rejoicing. Whether you're suffering or you're rejoicing, he says, take it all to the Lord. Pray to God in every sorrow. Praise God for every blessing. We're either called to prayer or called to praise. Either way. Why would James say this? He knows the, the pattern, the historical pattern of God's people in tough times. And he knows the historical pattern of God's people in good times. And their pattern is very similar to our pattern. You'll remember, uh, for those of you who uh, remember the Old Testament, for those of you to whom the scriptures is new, I'll explain it very briefly. The temptation in tough times is to always medicate yourself with something and make that thing God. And the temptation in good times is to just totally forget God. Uh, when the people of God were suffering in the wilderness, they complained about God. They doubted the nature of God. They doubted the wisdom of God. They doubted the presence of God. And then eventually they turned from God. That's what they did in the wilderness. But then when they got to the promised land, all of the good things that were meant to be enjoyed with God, those good gifts ended up eclipsing God. The good gifts, the good gifts ended up being God. So James knows that whether, whether you've got a reason to praise or a reason to go to God in prayer... Uh, you've got to be, your heart, your life, it's got to be oriented towards God, particularly when you're sick and tired. Because when you're sick and tired, uh, that's when uh, the mini messiahs come calling. That's when, as John Calvin said, our, our hearts are like idol factories. And so uh, that's the problem of being sick and tired. So what do we do then? What do we do when we're sick and tired? Uh, one thing is obvious and the other thing is not so obvious. And the obvious thing is that we're to turn to God and trust but the not so obvious thing is we're to turn to one another in openness. So first, let's just sort of break this down a little bit. You'll notice that when they're sick and tired, he says, you got to turn to God and trust. And in verse 14, he, he actually puts the onus on the person who's sick and tired. You'll remember that throughout the book, I've mentioned a number of times in, throughout the letter that James is saying there's a big difference between living a life of dependence and a 
a life of independence. So here, even if you are sick and tired and weary, you could be sick and tired physically, you could be sick and tired emotionally, maybe you can't get out of your bed because you're so sick, which is probably the context of this passage. Okay, you can't get out of your bed because you're so physically sick, you can't get out of your bed because you're so emotionally sick. Whatever, whatever that is, he actually puts the onus on the, the person who's sick and tired and he says, reach out to the elders. The text says, let them call. This teaches us two things. The first thing it teaches us is that the elders, so in our Redeemer context, for Peter and Rick and myself, we are supposed to give our time and attention and make it a priority to pray for you when you're sick, to come and visit you when you're sick, to spend time with you when you are sick and tired, to, to make that a priority, to not sit back in some sort of you know ivory tower position of power and only give our time to people who we think have the greatest ROI for the church. This is a call to the elders to, 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 to care for the sick, not, you know, sort of isolate them. And when we go, uh, we're supposed to remind you of the eternal because the temptation for you is going to be to fixate on the temporal. And so this is the first thing it teaches us. But the second thing it teaches us is not only what the elders are supposed to be doing, it also teaches us that when you are sick and tired, church, as we all get, and in this pandemic, many of us are sick and tired, maybe not physically, but maybe emotionally. When you are sick and tired, whether physically or emotionally or spiritually, uh, reach out. Don't wait. Uh, don't play the game where you sit back and wait and, and look at your watch and see how long it takes for me to notice or for Rick to notice, or for Peter to notice, or for anybody else in the church to notice. And don't do that. I've been in church since 1995, and I've watched lots of people reach out, and I've watched lots of people fade to black. And the text is like, don't fade to black. Don't sit back and be like, I'm just going to kind of wait and see if anybody notices, and then get offended and, and sort of fade to black. Don't do it. The text puts the onus on, on the one who is sick. Now, why? Why, though, uh, would it be? Um, you know, well, the... As, as you know, um, all of us uh, are frail and uh, elders don't have some sort of spiritual superpower. We have no advantage. I'm not any better than any of you. I don't have any sort of spiritual advantage over any of you. The only difference between me and you is that uh, all of you have called me to give my whole life to study the scriptures and care for you, but I'm just like you. And so, uh, the, so because elders are, uh, do not have a, some sort of spiritual superpower in mind reading, reach out, call out. It's difficult to do that because that puts you in a position of humility, that puts you in a position of vulnerability, position of openness to say, hey, listen, I need you to pray for me. And uh, so I encourage you to just consider that the text puts the onus there. Um, and so then it tell, says that the elders have to go we are to go and to anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. What's this about? Um, again, for those of you new to the scriptures, um, if you were to uh, anoint something, the text says anoint something with oil, um, it means that it's quite often the word anointed or anointing means you set something apart for a specific purpose. For uh, example, Jesus Christ, his, uh, Christ in the Greek is Christos, which means anointed. Right, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like, hi, I'm Jesus Christ, and this is my brother, uh, James Christ, and this is my sister. It's not his last name. Christos uh, means anointed. But here, when it says the elders are supposed to go and anoint, uh, the Greek word is not Christos. It's actually a, a different uh, word is used, which is 
aliapsantes. And aliapsantes doesn't mean anointed like set apart. Aliapsantes is more like medical terms. It's like elders go and take this oil that in the ancient world, um, oil was soothing. It was great for wounds and bruises and various diseases. And, you know, in Europe, they were using it to treat dropsy. And there's like all these sort of ancient implications of uh, the healing agents and oils. And so they're saying, listen, go and care for the sick in a really tangible, physical, medicinal kind of a way, like care for them. Um, so there's that, there's that side of it. So there's a medical sense, but there's also a spiritual sense because you'll notice the text always talk, also talks about saving the sick and their sins being forgiven. So there's a, there's a, a spiritual sense to it too. So let's look at it. You know, in, in the medical sense, you know, it's going to be good uh, f- for their physical ailments. Uh, and this is a call for us to boldly pray and ask God for physical healing. But in a spiritual sense, I want to draw your attention to the language because it's really important. The text says, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. Look at that phrase. The Lord will raise them up. Now that should make you think of something, that language, raise them up, because that is incredibly intentional. Intentional. We should be getting some notes and hints of resurrection language to raise them up. That's exactly, uh, specifically, um, what's being encouraged here. It, because the sick can be raised in two ways, physically and eternally, right? If you're raised up within minutes, because uh, you are prayed for and you receive a physical healing, that's good. Uh, but to be raised from death, because you're united to Christ, because you trust in his grace, that's better. You know, when we planted this church in the first year of this church, there's a beautiful lady and her name was Janet. And many of you remember Janet. And I would go and visit Janet as she was in a long battle with, with cancer. And um, her daughter, Jennifer, is w- with us uh, uh, often when she's, well, uh, on this side of the border, uh, pre-COVID, but she traveled a lot for work. But um, Janet uh, would go and visit Janet and be with Janet in her, in her, in her final days. And towards the, her final days, would go and would pray with her and would, would bring oil. And, you know, I wasn't bringing the olive oil you know, thinking, okay, well, this olive oil is going to, you know, somehow mystically cure your cancer. Janet had placed her faith and her trust in Jesus Christ. Janet knew that in the end, God would raise her up. That was the tone of our conversations. And even to the day that she died, and uh, as I was doing her funeral and encouraging her family, this promise is true. The text says the Lord will raise them up. And whether physically or eternally, and in the case of Janet, which is going to be in the case of all of us, it's eternally, right? Correct. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the eternal power of uh, the implications of a resurrected Jesus. It gives us hope that we will be uh, raised to life just as Christ was. And Janet, though her body rests in the ground, her spirit is with her Savior, the same will be said of us. And one day when Christ's return, we will be raised bodily, that's the, imp- that's the significance of Jesus' bodily resurrection. It gives us hope as Christians. We don't become a ethereal part of the universe. We're not stardust. We're raised. And so the elders are supposed to go with this sort of message for those who are sick, for those who are being ailed, that if you're not raised physically, that you don't live your life in a, in a, in a state of constant depression because your body is failing you, but that your spirit can be very much lifted because you know that the Lord will raise you up. So after this instruction to the elders to turn, you know, for, 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 for you to turn to God with your trust. 
The text shifts now and we're supposed to turn to one another in openness. In verse 16, it talks about confessing our trespasses to one another. It says, pray for one another. Confess and pray, why? The text says, so that you'll be healed. Let's think about this. You know, when, you, when we are confessing our struggles with each other, when we are confessing our sins with each other, praying with each other, this brings healing. Because your confession, as you're just friends with the other people in the Redeemer community, as you're building friendships and relationships, confession can free you from the heavy burdens of unresolved sin. Confession can heal you from the, the crushing burden of secret sin. Confession uh, can heal you emotionally and spiritually, and, and, and that has implications on you physically. Confession involves, you know, um, it removes the hindrance of pride. It removes the hindrance of arrogance. It removes the errors of self-righteousness when we confess what we're struggling with, with our brothers and sisters at Redeemer. Uh, it removes all these hindrances so that the Spirit can bring renewal, real renewal to your soul, because the fruit of the Spirit grows in the soil of our repentance. And confession uh, requires trust and closeness and friendship. So you see, this is the non-obvious part of this text, where it's like, yes, of course, we turn our trust to God and we pray, but also there's a call here for us, church, and these are difficult days to do it. But for there to be an, an openness and a desire and a love, for there to be a close friendship with one another, right here even in our Redeemer community. How is it possible for you to confess with one another uh, without having a closeness with one another and a trust for one another? That takes time, a lot of time, and a lot of commitment. Relationships, friendships, are a two-way street uh, that take a lot of time to build. Friendships in the church... I mean, we can be a friendly church, but to build friendships in the church, um, it's not like getting on the highway. It's like trying to drive through downtown. Speed bumps, stop signs, obstacles, time, commitment, takes time. So this text is, is by calling us to confess our sins to one another, we can't just glaze over that and say, well, wait a minute, that means I need to take the time to be open and vulnerable and, and commit. And it's very easy to sit back and uh, I've done this. You've probably all done this. It's very easy for us to sit back and say, well, I have this great expectation on this, this nebulous thing called the Redeemer community. Uh, I have this expectation they, they should be caring and loving to, towards me. That is a right and true expectation. But the question is, what about you? You're not apart from the nebulous thing called the Redeemer community. You are part of the Redeemer community. And therefore, even if you are not Uh, do not even feel like you've been a recipient of that kind of closeness and friendship. If you are committed to reaching out and being the kind of person who cares in his friendship, then it's working, friend. It may not in the moment be working for you, but it is working because you and your care and your love are serving someone else. This is the long game, friends. This is the long game. And so this confession has beautiful healing qualities and it's going to take Um, a long time, but we're committed to it. Historically speaking, do you know what comes after confession? Revival. So if you want to see revival in our church community, if you want to see revival even in your own heart and your own life, then 
there's this humbling place of confession. And not only towards God, but getting out of the context of your Zoom box so that there's a love and a care and a genuine effort in reaching out so that you are a minister of this, uh, uh, of God's goodness and grace so that we can be a place where this is uh, possible. The text goes on to say that the prayer of the righteous has great power in its working. So who is righteous? Gives us an example of Elijah and you think, oh great, well that's a tall order. Um, but actually it's not a tall order because when you read 1 Kings 18, Elijah is a man of great faith. And then in 1 Kings 19, he's running away in fear. 1 Kings 18, great victory by the power of God. Trusts God. Chapter 19, running away. Doesn't trust God. Chapter 18, defeats the prophets of Baal. God is able to do this. Chapter 19, I got to run for my life. God is not able to do this. The text says, Elijah has a nature just like you. That's good news. He's up and he's down. He's in and then he's out. Just like you and I. Right? And so the text is not calling us to be intimidated by Elijah or amazed by Elijah. It's to see that we're just like Elijah and to be amazed at the goodness of God and what he was able to do through someone uh, like Elijah. Who is righteous? The text says the righteous has the righteous person has a prayer that has great power and it's working. Who is righteous? The righteous is the person who knows that they are called righteous, not on the basis of their own uh, progress, but Christ's perfection, the perfect life that he lived that we are not living, his atoning death in our stead, his resurrection power. We know, we the righteous are those who know that Jesus was righteous by nature. We are not righteous by nature. We're like Elijah by nature. We're declared righteous by grace. And so, because that is true, united to Christ, our resemblance to Christ, though imperfect, is increasing. And though our resemblance to Jesus is imperfect, it's increasing. And so therefore we can be encouraged that just uh, as Elijah has a nature like ours, the text says, God was able to uh, do great things through him because his heart was after God. And the same can be said of us. Our nature is sinful and gloriously flawed, but our hearts are still after God. And God hears our prayers when we pray and when we trust him. And so... This unmistakable parallel between Elijah's nature and our nature is a cause for encouragement because Elijah's up and down, I trust God and then I don't, I believe that he can and then I run away from my life. That, that sort of thing did not hinder God's ability to minister through Elijah and our sinful nature will not hinder God's ability to minister th- through us, which leads to the final thing is that, you know, the problem of being sick and tired is that, of course, we're tempted uh, to turn from God. What we're to do when we're sick and tired is to turn to God and to turn to one another in openness. And the final thing is that we're actually called to minister to the sick and tired. Who are the sick and tired? Those whose weariness causes them to wander. The text in verse 19 says, Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. You wander when you're weary. And all of us here at Redeemer, at some point, get weary. And what's interesting is the text says, someone should bring that person back. And maybe you're thinking, no, that can't be right. Not someone. Shouldn't it say elders should bring that person back? Didn't this text start by saying, here's what the elders are supposed to be up to? 
Should it be qualified, ordained preachers are supposed to bring these people back? Is it people who have a master's degree in counseling? They should bring them back. Not me. I'm not that kind of person. No, the text says, look at it again in verse 19. Someone should bring that person back. If, if one of you should bring that person back, that's what it says. You say, that can't be right. What does it mean in the Greek? Let me save you some time. It means someone should bring them back. It doesn't say elders, it says someone. And, you know, this is really, really significant because quite often we feel like we're not qualified. You hear of somebody who's weary in the church and like, oh, they are going through it. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call Peter. I'm going to call Paul. I'll call Rick. Hey, guys, I found a problem. You got to get right over there. And you say, well, Paul, this sounds like you're phoning it in. This sounds like you're not caring about doing your job. No, I care about doing my job. I am going to do my job. I do do my job. But part of my job as a minister is to make sure I'm not the only minister. The role of the elders is to make sure that they're not the only ones doing the ministry of the elders. We're training other ministers and we're all to do it together. And so the word of God calls you to this. And this is actually good news. I know it seems very intimidating, but this is good news because think of it this way. We have been in this... Um, this pandemic scenario for, you know, not going on nine months. And it could be months, months and months more. And we pray to God it isn't, but it could be. And in the, in the next few months, uh, Rick and Ann and Peter and Brianna and Susan and I, we're going to be reaching out to all of you because we care about you. We love you. Uh, we're going to extend offer to opportunity to have, you know, virtual coffees with you or whatever. And which, of course, is uh, not that exciting on Zoom. We wish we could be together with you. But the bottom line is we care about you and we love you. and We love to do it. We're happy to do it. Uh, and uh, we ought not to be the only ones that are doing it. And so all of us together as, as members, this is our call to minister to the weary, to, min- to notice when people are wandering, to reach out to those who are, who are wandering. And... For, for those of you who are uh, joining uh, the service this morning who are members of Redeemer, you've made a commitment to membership at Redeemer, uh, then you remember that we always talk about it, that to be a member is to be a minister. Members are not connoisseurs. Connoisseurs are really clear on what they like and what they don't like. Uh, you know, I don't care for Zoom. I don't care for this. I don't care for that. I don't care for that. Yeah, well, we know what you don't care for, but you're not a connoisseur. You're a minister. And so together we minister and together we we care and we love. What's amazing is that, you know, there's a reason uh, that the, the text says wander um, because it's a good word because you don't wander intentionally. And that's why it's called wandering. You don't march off. The text doesn't say those who marched out of the church in t- with intention. You, they wandered out. And the thing with wandering is it's something that you do when you're distracted. It's something that you do when you're weary. I went to the auto show last year with Peter Peter and I go to look at these cars together. And every once in a while, I'd be like, oh man, I really like how this, Peter? Peter would wander off. That guy, he'd always be sitting in a Volkswagen someplace. Why did he do that? Distracted. When, and then Peter would be looking at a car and he'd go, Paul, you know, I really like, and he'd look and I'd be gone. Where, where's Paul? And I'm off looking at something. Wander off. We didn't get there and say, hey, it's great to go to the auto show together. Let's make sure that we just keep losing each other every five minutes. You don't intentionally wander, but it happens. And so the text says when somebody wanders off, 
because they're so sick and tired or life is hard or they're depressed or they're sick and tired of Zoom like everybody is, including all the preachers that are using it. Uh, And you notice that. The text is like, somebody should go and reach out to that person and love them and care for them. And so Jesus called us sheep for a reason because of course sheep need a shepherd. And amazingly, what spiritual maturity looks like is sheep acting like shepherds, going and caring, going and, and uh, reaching out. And so when you, when you think to yourself, you know, I haven't seen this person in a while, uh, call them. You know, don't call me. You found it, you fix it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're going to care for people together. And uh, the Spirit prompted you to think of that person. Uh, so reach out to that person. And you might think, I don't know, uh, I need more training. I doubt it. Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the kinds of people that God has a habit of using? Uh, he's not reserved the theologians and the armchair pastors. and the No, it is not like the certain sect of people that God's up to using. <clears throat> he will use... Uh, all of us, because God specializes in the ordinary so that he can do his extraordinary. And it reminds us, you know, that when, when the text says someone should bring them back, it's just a glorious reminder that the pressure is off of you. You are an instrument in the hand of the master. God does the saving. Jesus continually does the saving. It's, the pressure is not on you. You can just graciously reach out, you know, in love and in care. Um, the pressure is totally off. I don't know if you've ever seen chainsaw carvings before, but they can be extraordinary. The kind of sculpting that people can do with chainsaws will blow your mind. And if I said to you, hey, I'm going to give you a stump and I want you to make a beautiful uh, sculpture out of this and you can go and grab any tool you want. (laughs) Many of you would probably not say chainsaw. That's a precision instrument. You, you wouldn't think of it. And you know, in terms of ministry in this text and the calling us to reach out, a lot of us feel like I'm a chainsaw. God cannot use a chainsaw to do a beautiful carving. But here's the thing. Nobody looks at a chainsaw carving and goes, wow, and marvels at the Black & Decker or the Hilti or the McKee. I don't even know. I don't even know what a chainsaw. I don't even know why I went use this analogy. But the point is, it gives glory to the artist. It gives glory to the, the one whose, whose hand the chainsaw is in. And so maybe you feel as though you're not the right instrument to be reaching out and caring uh, for others. And I need you to know that you are because you are an instrument in the hand of the great master who will uh, use all of us for his glory to care for the church. And then the, the letter just ends. It just ends abruptly with this call to ministry. And... Uh, which is really interesting because all the other letters, they end with closing remarks and farewells and prayers. And a lot of the letters end sa- sounding like, you know, say hi to your mother for me. They sound like that. This letter, he's just like, it ends as boldly as it began. It sounds like James says, just do your talking on the track. You say you love Jesus and there's this glorious grace, then just go and minister his grace. Don't worry about it. You're an instrument in the hand of the master. He has always done his saving work. He will continue to do it. He'll use you and I. We're very ordinary. We're deeply flawed. We're just like Elijah. We're trust God one minute and we're running away the next. And God is not intimidated by that. And so this is very encouraging 
the letter, be, you know, it began by saying, if your faith is alive, it's going to manifest in loving and caring action. And it ends with this unapologetic call to action. And James knows that if our hearts are gripped by grace, then when God's word says to us, live like this, the heart gripped by grace responds by saying, I want this. And God's grace is not like this opium that sedates the church. It's this smelling salts that wake us up. And the good news of the gospel, as I close our time this morning, is this. We're called to reach out in love and care and concern for those who wander because we were the ones pursued by Jesus, the good shepherd, who saved us in love and care and concern when we wandered. And because of his life and his death and his resurrection, we now are united to the one who left the comfort of heaven to extend his saving grace to us. And we are empowered by his indwelling spirit to leave our comfort and extend his saving grace to others. Let's pray.